0: I want to invite you this morning to take a Bible and turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke uh, chapter 9 is where our study is this morning. Now, if you're new to the Bible, I want you to know that it's divided up into two sections. We have first the Old Testament, which covers the books of Genesis through the book of Malachi. And then we have the New Testament, which is the second section of the Bible. And it begins with the Gospel of Matthew and continues all the way through to the book of Revelation. Now, inside those two sections, those two divisions, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the books of the Bible, which there are 66 of them, they're organized by theme. So right now... We as a church family are walking through the book of Luke, which is in the first four books of the New Testament known as the Gospels. That's the theme. And the Gospels focus on the earthly life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And so if you're trying to find your place there, we're in the New Testament, which is the second section. And we're within the first set of books called the Gospels, and we are focusing in on the Gospel of Luke. Now, another key thing about the Bible, if you're new to studying the Scriptures, you're going to find big numbers and little numbers. Uh, the, the big numbers are chapters. Uh, the little numbers are verses. So if we say Luke chapter 9, you're going to find the chapter. And if we say we're going to begin at verse number 1, you'll find the verse. And that's how we know where we are collectively instead of uh, just spending hours trying to figure out where we're to find our place. So Luke chapter 9 this morning, and I want you to understand that so as you begin to study your Bibles and learn how the the Bible is laid out, you'll be able to easily follow its progression. Luke chapter 9 is where we are, and let's begin reading at verse number 1. And he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal and he said to them take nothing for your journey no staff no bag nor bread nor money and do not have two tunics or two coats and whatever house you enter stay there and from there depart and wherever they do not receive you when you leave that town shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them and they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel Now, on their return, the apostles told them all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now, the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to them, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But Jesus said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fishes unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men, which means there was about at least 20 to 25,000 people. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, others that one of the prophets of old is risen. Then he said to them, but what do you say I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Well, in our study of Luke's gospel, it would seem that we have just begun in terms of the time that Jesus has had so far with his 12 disciples. It was back in Luke chapter 5 uh, when he called his first disciples to follow him. It was in Luke chapter 6 when we see all 12 actually together in one group. And now, this morning, we're in Luke chapter 9. So we're only three to four chapters removed from these 12 men being selected as Jesus' 12 apostles. Now, while not everything Luke gives us is chronological, some events he groups by theme, most of what Luke gives us is chronological. And we have a really good idea where we are in the timeline of Jesus' life and earthly ministry when we come to any chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And I'm saying all of this to tell you that we are about two years in from the point Jesus called his first disciples to follow him. So so I know we're only a couple of chapters removed, but in the timeline, we're about two years in, two years that these men have spent intimately with Jesus, learning from him, watching him, following him. And, And here's why I believe this is so significant. Because sometimes we rush the timing and training that is absolutely essential for us in order to do God's work effectively. For the first time, Jesus is preparing to send here in Luke chapter 9 his 12 apostles out on their own for a brief little mission. And this will be their first mission on their own without Jesus leading it. But not before they had spent at least two years simply learning and watching from their teacher. I just, I just kind of want to begin here and mention this in passing just to encourage us all to be patient in what the Lord is doing in our lives. Study the lives of Abraham and Joseph and Moses and David along with many, many others and you'll find that each of them had a whole lot of waiting and growing before God put them where he had ultimately empowered and called them to be. Now, that kind of patience requires some things. It requires humility on our part. It requires submission to the plan and training of God. But if we are humble and if we are patient, in the end, we will be better for it and God will be more glorified because of it. Be patient. Don't rush the timing of God. Don't skip The training period, two years. And for the first time, Jesus is saying, all right, this next couple of weeks, you're going to do this without me. But that little note in this passage is not the main focus. Since Luke began this gospel, he purposely set out to write this history of Jesus' life and ministry in such a fashion that we could have certainty about who Jesus is. Certainty. That's the word that he uses in the opening verses of Luke chapter 1. I am writing these things so that you will be certain about the truths of Jesus Christ. And Luke is able to write these things because that's exactly how Jesus conducted his life in ministry. He conducted his life in ministry in such a way that those who watched him and listened to him and followed him would have absolute certainty about who he is. Certainty. Not doubts, not confusions, certainty. And let me just be clear this morning that Jesus' identity is not determined by popular vote or the electoral college for that matter. His identity is rooted in eternity and it is revealed in Scripture. It is not your responsibility or mine to determine who we want Jesus to be. It is our responsibility to accept who he is as God's word reveals him to us. And Luke has revealed a lot to us about Jesus in these first eight chapters. We've seen and heard who Jesus is. Just think about these Titles and these identities so far in our study since Luke chapter 1, we've seen Jesus as the Son of God, Savior, Christ the Lord, the salvation of God, Redeemer, God's beloved Son, the Lord God, the Holy One of God. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. And we just recently read in Luke chapter 8 that He's the Son of the Most High God. So, so far, this is who we've heard. Jesus is we've also learned what Jesus has done since Luke chapter 1 he was born from a virgin he astonished religious leaders at the age of 12 he perfectly and sinlessly overcame Satan's temptations We've watched him cast out demons, heal all kinds of sickness, cause the paralyzed to walk. We've even watched him raise two people from the dead. We've seen him miraculously in a breath calm a storm. We've watched him fulfill ultimate scriptures. And the greatest thing is we've watched him forgive sins. Time won't even allow me to talk about this morning, the powerful and revealing sermons that Jesus has been preaching since we've learned of Him. Now, in all of this, what they're hearing about Jesus, what they're watching in Jesus, people are beginning to ask a very important question. Who is this man? I mean, really? This is like nothing we've ever seen before or heard of before. Who Who is this? Remember, it was just at the end of Luke chapter 8 that the disciples had asked the same question after he calmed that deathly storm. Luke chapter 8, verse 25. Who is this that winds and water obey him? Who is this? And that's what we now see woven in Luke chapter 9. You have your Bible open? Look at verse 9, Luke chapter 9. This is Herod speaking. Who is this? Who is this about whom I hear such things? Look at verse 18, Jesus asks his disciples, who who do the crowds say that I am? Verse 20, Jesus again, who do you say that I am? Can I tell you this morning, everybody look right here. That is the most important question you'll ever have to answer. Who do you say that he is? And you do have to answer it. You do. Everybody has to answer it, and it's the most important question you'll ever have to answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? Now, I want you to notice a couple things as we think about that. The, the, the first thing over this first nine verses that I wrote is that there are those who are cynical about Jesus. There are those who are cynical about Jesus. Now, as I've already mentioned, Luke 9 begins with the sending of the twelve On their first mission. I do think it's important because some of you are thinking about this already as we're reading through those first few verses. And so I just need to stop and help us all to understand that the instruction and the empowerment here was exclusively for the 12 apostles for this specific mission. In other words, there are principles here that we all can follow, but the specifics, the specifics of having power over demons and the ability to heal diseases along with the restrictions that Jesus placed on them is not intended to be strictly applied to us, nor would it be permanently applied to them. For example... The very same things that Jesus is telling them not to take with them in Luke chapter 9. Don't don't take your staff. Don't take a bag of money. uh, Don't take two coats. The very things he's telling them not to take in Luke chapter 9 are the same things he will later instruct them to take in Luke chapter 22. So this particular mission is not about us applying these specifics to our own life today. There are principles here. That is, don't get distracted. Stick to the mission. Don't let your life get cluttered by things that are going to cause you or keep you from serving God. There's principles. Principles. But the specifics are not meant to be applied because they weren't even permanently applied to them. This particular mission is still about their ongoing growth. It's still about their training. And what Jesus is doing with these instructions is he's teaching them how to be flexible. Humble. To live in simplicity i wonder i wonder is your life being lived in simplicity this morning well i think we could probably answer that question if you don't know how many streaming accounts that you have on your bank bank register right now we're just paying for things we don't even know what we're paying for And I think that's what the the point that Jesus is making here, what he's trying to teach them. He's trying to teach them to be flexible, to be humble, to live in simplicity so not to clutter their lives to the point that they are unable to actually go or fulfill the mission. We have to pause and and really examine our own lives in that from time to time. Have I managed my life in such a way that if God told me this morning on this Lord's Day, August the 13th, I want you to leave it all and go, could you even do that? Or are you so bound up with the clutters of material and financial things that there's no way you could fulfill the mission that God has designed for you? Again, he's going to take these restrictions off a little later. But like all of us in life, we need to learn some very important lessons so that later on we'll always depend upon Jesus. But let's not miss the main point, verse 6. Verse 6 is the main point. They went everywhere preaching the gospel and healing the sick. That's what they were doing. They're going everywhere preaching the gospel and healing the sick. And it's it's within that context that we come to Herod. Herod was the Roman king who presided over Israel. Remember, the Jews lived under Roman authority. And so Roman kings would set themselves up over the authority of Jewish people. And that's who Herod is. In verse 7, the Bible says that Herod heard. He heard. He heard about all that was happening. Well, what was happening verses 1 through 6? That's what was happening. He heard about all the healings. He heard about the casting out of the demons. He heard about the sermons they were preaching. And now he's got a question. He's heard a lot, and he's got a question. And the question is, verse 9, Who is this about whom I hear such things? They're out doing the ministry of the gospel, and Herod has a question about who Jesus is. Now, I love that whole scene. Because it's a reminder to me that everything about our preaching, everything about our worship, everything about our ministry to and for others should lead people to constantly consider who Jesus is. If I ever preach a message, a single sermon that doesn't call somebody to think about the identity of Jesus, then it was not a Christian sermon that I preached. What these apostles were doing was so filled with gospel. It was so filled with Jesus. It was all about Christ that Herod couldn't help to stop and say, who is this they're preaching about? Who is this they're talking about? Who is it that they're doing all these things in his name? I need to know, who is this? So the very fact that Herod is even asking this question is It's a positive acknowledgement that the disciples were effectively carrying out Christ's ministry. And friends, I want that to be said about us. I want so much to be effective in carrying out Christ's mission. I want every sermon, every song, every ministry endeavor we do, I want it to cause people to consider who Jesus is. Unfortunately, verse 7 tells us that Herod was perplexed, confused. Because the rumor is that John the Baptist is doing all these things. Who is this? Well, it's John the Baptist. He's come back, from the, come back from the dead. But if you'll notice here in the language, Herod emphatically, emphatically and without any emotional hesitation of regret says, I know it's not John because I killed him. I know it's not John. I'm the one who beheaded him. Now, church, Herod is a wicked man. And it's somewhat chilling to see him say this about John just so matter-of-factly. Think about what he's doing. He admits to killing a prophet of God and doesn't even blink about it. It's as if he's somewhat laughing. John the Baptist, ah, I killed that annoying little guy. I took his head off. And when you put that context within the perplexity of his emotions that he's experiencing, you'll discover very quickly that this is not a man who's confused and wants to know the truth. This is a man who is cynical toward Jesus. He's cynical toward Jesus. And his continued treatment of Jesus proves that. This was not an isolated situation. You don't have to turn there. We're going to get there eventually, maybe in the next few weeks, few months, a couple years. I don't know. But one day we're going to come to Luke chapter 13. And in Luke chapter 13 and verse 31, it says to Jesus, At that very hour, even Pharisees came to him and said, You need to get away from here. Herod wants to kill you. The same Herod. And then we read later in Luke 23 that Herod, with his soldiers, treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him. This is not a man who is perplexed and wants to know the truth. This is a man who's perplexed and is interested in doing the same thing to him that he did to John. He's cynical. And it's interesting at the end of verse 9 that Herod sought to see Jesus. Did you read that? Did you see that a moment ago? And Herod sought to see Jesus. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. He sought, the king, Herod, sought to see Jesus. Now what king doesn't get what he wants? I mean he's the king. He's the king. He can do anything that he wants to do. And if he really wanted to see Jesus, he could have made that happen mean he sought to see Jesus whether he wanted to do it by a force of soldiers or not he could have seen Jesus if he wanted to now we can respond to that in two different lights one we can say that Jesus didn't allow it to happen because of his unbelief and perhaps that might be true after all it is faith that gives us access to Jesus or and this is where I lean That although Herod expressed a desire to see Jesus, he was really deep down inside just content and satisfied with being cynical toward him. Regardless, Herod rejected who Jesus is. And he rejected who Jesus is because of his hardened, cynical unbelief. And you know what? There may be some here this morning in the same capacity. I ask you who Jesus is and you don't even care. Your heart is hardened toward Him. There's a spirit of cynicism toward God's Word and what it reveals about Jesus, which is ultimately an underlining issue of unbelief. And the Word of God says says to us in Hebrews that if today you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Because you'll not always hear His voice you'll not always have the opportunity to respond in faith to him so today today if you hear him do not harden your heart do not be cynical about jesus believe some are cynical like herod i also wrote down here number two there are those who compliment jesus so there are those who are cynical about jesus and there are those who compliment jesus and that, that brings us down to verse number 18. And this time the conversation isn't between Herod and his counsel. It's between Jesus and his disciples. We read that Jesus had been praying. The disciples were with him. And then he asked them a question. Verse 18, look at it. Who do the crowds say that I am? Hey, guys, I want you to tell me something. What are the people saying? What are they saying about me? After all, Jesus' ministry has literally been the thousands of people. I mentioned it a moment ago. In these ancient times, when numbers were counted, they, they only counted the head of households. When it says 5,000 men, it was only the head of household. It's not counting the fact that there were wives present and children present. So, the, the very least, the very least, we're talking about a huge number, not of 5,000, but twenty to 25,000 people that were gathered. And I believe that was a common thing his disciples have been among those crowds doing ministries. They've been able to hear. They've been able to watch and see. So Jesus says, who do they say I am? Of course, their response, look at it, verse 19. Well, John the Baptist, that's what they say. But others say Elijah. Others say that you're one of the prophets of old who've come back from the dead. And that's exactly what some were saying. In fact, that's the same answer that Herod had heard, Right? You go back to verse seven. He says, "Who is this?" And his council, the people around him, said, "It's said by some that it's John Herod, that he's been raised from the dead." But others are saying it's Elijah. Others are saying that one of the prophets of old have risen. Now, let me just say this: I want you to be able to grasp what's being said here from a purely human standpoint regarding Jesus. For Jewish people to think that you're John the Baptist or Elijah, or Moses, or Isaiah, or Jeremiah, one of the old prophets, if someone compared you to them, that was a compliment from a pure human standpoint. Now, these men were revered. I mean, if somebody said, I, we think it's Abraham, I mean, he's the father of the whole nation. No, no, it's Moses. He's the greatest leader we've had, ever had. No, 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 it's David. He's the greatest king we've ever had. I mean, these, these are all compliments. These prophets of Israel, they're they're greatly admired, they're greatly respected for how God had used them in declarative and miraculous ways. And you know many today continue to compliment Jesus. They do. (laughs) Maybe maybe, maybe you're here this morning, you have no animosity toward Jesus. You're not cynical about Him. In fact, you compliment Him. Now Jesus, who is He? He's a man of compassion. He's a man of high morals. Who is He? Who is He? Well, here's what I think he is. I, th- I think he was the greatest religious figure in history. Maybe your compliments sound like this. He was a good teacher. He, he was a great prophet. Uh, maybe you even compliment the fact that he was a miracle worker. Perhaps you feel as if you've been complimenting him this morning by simply being here. Like you did Jesus a favor by coming it's Sunday morning, this is what Christians do, you know, haven't been there in a while, we actually kind of done some bad stuff this week, so maybe we need to go to church and so Jesus can see that we've tipped him. You're here complimenting Jesus. No no desire for him to be Lord, no no exploring the reality of his true identity and its implications on your life and your marriage and your parenting and your holiness and your work and your future and and all this kind of stuff. It's just, hey, I, I think he's a pretty good guy, a good prophet. He might actually be the one who saves us. So you know what? As a compliment to him, I'm going to go to church this morning. As as a compliment to him, I'm going to put something in the offering. As a compliment to him, I'm going to embrace what he stands for morally and religiously and vote the way that I think Jesus would vote. And we do all those things. We do all those things as a compliment to Jesus. But listen to me very clearly. To simply compliment him is not the same as knowing him. It's not the same. And it's not complimentary gifts or gestures that will remove God's wrath and condemnation on your life. Complimenting Jesus will never save your sinful soul. Why? Because he's more than a teacher. He's more than a prophet. He's more than a miracle worker. He's so much more than a religious figure or a moral champion. He is God and the one and only true Savior of our souls. And that's why I tucked in between these two little scenes in this story, the one about here and the one with Jesus, is this story of feeding the five thousand. And I know some of you are thinking, when is he ever going to get to that? If he hadn't got to that yet, we're going to be here forever this morning. Well, I tend to do it in brevity. So what we have here is Luke intentionally putting this scene between these series of questions. And what he's doing here is showing this us. That throughout Jesus' ministry, everything he did and taught was to continue to reveal who he is to the people. I've been following Jesus since I was five years old. And one of the reasons why I faithfully come to church week after week and study my Bible and read books about Jesus is because every week of my life, even after all these years, I am still learning more about Jesus that I didn't know. So everything he does, every miracle, every, every sermon, he's, he's continuing to reveal who he is to the people. And among this massive crowd of people, Jesus comes to his disciples after they suggested that everybody go home because we're hungry. He says, why do you want to send them home to McDonald's? You give them something to eat. I think it's a rather interesting proposition. Almost like a double dog dare you. You give them something to eat. That's what I want you to do. I don't want you to send them away. I want you, I want you now to give them something to eat. He was telling them to do something that they had no power or ability to do. Twelve of them, not much. They're in a desolate place. There's no drive throughs nearby. And there's over 20,000 people. And he says to them, In a desolate place with no access to food and only a little bit of food, lunch, you feed them. The Lord will often do this. He will often ask you and I to do things that we don't have the power to do. Don't for a single moment believe this notion that some people love to spread on their false social media feeds. That God will never give you more than you can handle. Listen to me right here. He often gives you more than you can handle. and Some of you are experiencing that right now and you're confused why you can't make sense all of this. Well, I thought God never gave us more than we can handle. Where would you get that from? He often gives us more than we can handle. He often asks us to do things that we don't have the ability to do or the means to do or the power to do. It's not true that God doesn't give you more than you can handle. It's not biblical. In fact, the reason he does this is so that we might learn to trust and depend on his power and provision. That's why he was asking the disciples to do what they couldn't do. Yeah, I need you to get used to this, fellas, because I'm going to ask you to do a lot of things that you can't do. And you'll never actually be effective for me until you start depending and trusting on me to do through you what you know you cannot do on your own. And so Jesus says, I'll take it from here. Make them sit down in groups of 50. Now, as an OCD, high administrative guy, I love this. My mom came in this week for our Wednesday worship, family hymn night, and she said all the communion cups in just a glorious order. And I overheard my father saying to one of the deacons or one of the ushers back there that, "Hey, y'all've wondered for 15 years why why Jonathan's so messed up. That's why, right there, he gets it from his mom. So, so we need to step back and look at how Jesus conducted His ministry. He did so with organization and structure. Sit them down in groups of 50. We're going to do this the right way. Imagine how long that took with 12 men trying to get 50 people to stay in one place. I have four kids. I can't even get four kids to stay in one place. That was quite a task. Well, he does it. 20,000 people, they sit down in groups of 50. He takes a small lunch belonging to a little boy, five loaves of bread, two fishes. He begins to break it. He blesses it. He gives it to the disciples, and the disciples start to disperse it. That little lunch. They go everywhere spreading it out. And, and then the funny thing is, they weren't running out. It's like every time they put their hand in the basket, more stuff was coming, more stuff was coming, more fish, more, more bread, more banana pudding, whatever was in there. It all is all coming out, right? And the miracle was that lunch miraculously multiplied and not only feeding everyone present, as the scripture says, until they were full, like, hey, we can't eat anymore. So it wasn't a skim lunch. It wasn't a diet lunch like I'm on right now where I want more but I can't have more. No, hey, they gave them until they couldn't eat anymore and had 12 baskets left over. Who do you think those 12 baskets probably were for? As a reminder to 12 men around him that, hey, what you can't do, I can't. And once again, in this miracle, Jesus proves his identity. What is he proving? That he is, listen, that he is the all-sufficient, more than enough, more than enough, son of God who will feed those who trust in him. Some are cynical about Jesus and as a result they're condemned by their unbelief. Some are complimentary toward Jesus but are still condemned by their unbelief. But then here's the final one. There are those who confess Jesus. And they confess him for who he is. Lord. Lord. So Jesus had just asked his disciples what the crowd were saying about him. Hey, what, what's the people saying? They answer, and then he turns to them and he says, I think it was just like this. But what do y'all think? He was from South Nazareth, he grew up in southern Galilee, so he probably said y'all a lot. But what do y'all think? Okay, you've told me what the crowd thinks. What do you think? It's personal. What about you? What about you? What, what do you think? Who, who, do, who do you say that I am? Now, here's the interesting thing. Jesus knows everything you already think about him. He knows everything you already think about Him. And what you think about Him is not only the most important thing in this life, but it determines what eternal life's going to be like for you. So in the end, it doesn't matter what the crowds think. It does not matter what the crowds think about Him. It doesn't matter what your mother thinks about Him. It doesn't matter what your brother thinks about Him. It doesn't really matter what anybody else thinks about Jesus. All that matters is what you think about Him. Who do you, who do you say that Jesus is? Well, Peter answered, "You're the Christ of God. You're the Messiah sent from God. You're Jesus, the Lord savior. And guess what? Peter's right. Jesus is not John the Baptist risen from the dead. Jesus was not Elijah or Moses. No, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one God promised would come all the way back in Genesis 3, 15 and crush Satan. He's the Lord of the universe. He's the one and only God, the one and only savior of the world. He is the Christ Of God, the Lord. This is who He is. And until, like Peter, you believe and confess Him for who He is, then you'll continue to be eternally separated from God and His marvelous grace. This is why it's the most important question you'll ever answer. Because how you answer this determines whether or not you are right with God, reconciled to Him, forgiven, and eternally, eternally promised forever with Him. Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ Messiah. And what does the Christ Messiah come to do? Well, he answers that for us in verse 22. I failed to read that at the beginning of the sermon, but it's included in our text this morning. Verse 22. This is what Christ has come to do. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. That's what the Christ has come to do. Sure, the miracles are nice, the healings. But those are secondary. What he really came to do was to suffer in our place. Are you listening? Jesus came to suffer in your place. He came to be rejected in your place. He came to be killed in your place. So that like him, you can rise again. This is the gospel. And it's the only way that our sins will be forgiven and our hearts reconciled to God. The good news that Jesus Christ is God. That He came from heaven, lived a perfect sinless life, died on a cross in my place to pardon sin once and for all, was raised from the dead to fulfill the work of salvation for us so that those who trust in Him alone may receive grace and new life and reconciliation with God forever. That is the gospel. That's who Jesus is. That's why He came. And the question is, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Who do you say that Jesus is? Maybe you're Herod, cynical. Maybe you're the majority of the crowd, complimentary. But there's really only one right answer. And it's the answer that Peter gave us in the form of a confession. A confession from the heart, from the heart that publicly declares that Jesus Christ is the one true God And he died and rose again for our salvation, a confession that he is Lord and Savior. And without him, we have no hope. You say, Well, Pastor, I don't I don't think I I know everything. That's okay. You may not know everything there is to know yet. I'm not even sure that I do. But start with what you do know. And if God is dealing with your heart, what you do know is that you are a sinner that Jesus took your place and that He freely welcomes you into His loving arms of grace. That's what you do know. So, so put your trust in Jesus. Confess Him as your Lord and your Savior for this is the only way to be saved. It's the only way to be right with God. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. Romans 10, 9. If you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead and confess that he is Lord, you will be saved. So the question is, who do you say that he is? Let's stand together for prayer this morning.